0: I invite you to open up your Bibles, uh, to turn to Exodus chapter 16, or open up your worship guide at this time. So what uh, we are doing for just a few short weeks is that we are specifically uh, thinking about this idea of Sabbath, this idea of rest within Scripture. And this is uh, largely inspired because I was on sabbatical this past summer, and I want to share a few things that the Lord has taught me over, uh, over the summer. But next week, uh, we actually will have a guest preacher, uh, Darren Pesnell. Uh, Darren planted Ironworks Church up in Phoenixville, and he preached for us once over the summer. But he'll be preaching for us next week as I'll be away traveling uh, this week. And so, but at this time, let me uh, invite you to open up your... Your, your Bibles, this is Exodus 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 15 through the end of the chapter. You can follow along in your worship guides or on the wall behind me or in your own scripture, in your own Bibles. And this is the English Standard Version. So let's hear the word of God that is given for the people of God. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And jumping ahead to verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they Did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can. You shall each take an omer, which is about half a gallon, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they discovered it with an omer, But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they measured twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over. All that is left over. Lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and with the taste of it was like wafers, made with honey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us. We pray now that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to, to know your word for our life, that you would show us your character, that you would show us who you are as we consider what it is that you have done for your people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. George Westinghouse was an American entrepreneur, inventor, engineer. Uh, in his day, he was a rival with Thomas Edison. He was one of the titans of the Industrial Revolution. One of his inventions was an air brake for trains. And so when Jennifer and I lived in Pittsburgh, the Westinghouse brake Factory was just three blocks, not three blocks, three miles down the road. Perhaps you knew that. Perhaps you didn't. But there's an invention that he made, that he contributed to society that every single one of you benefit from today. And it is the gift of the weekend. In 1881, he was the first employer who gave his employees Saturday off. Actually, it's half a day Saturday. But so he gave the, the concept... Of the weekend as we know it. And this stood out because in the industrial era, in the time of the Industrial Revolution, people were, try- people were trying to think how can we make things more efficient? How can we just make more? So you have the assembly line, you have people who are actually increasing work hours and shifts, children were being put to work. And so here's Weston who actually wanted to care for his employees and to care for their families. He says, hey, have half a day of Saturday off. And so he paved the way for the weekend as we know it. And so when we think about the Sabbath, before I get to that, I want us to highlight that this is a gift. This is a clear gift. And without knowing it, this man is imitating God. Because every single one of us is benefits My family delights in having two family days. There's more time to be with our loved ones. There's more time to do various things that were neglected. And here's a question, though, from Ray Ortland. Hear this question. I wonder if the very concept of the weekend is biblical. It seems to me that the weekend turns Sunday into a second Saturday. Home Depot may gain, but we lose. It turns Sunday into a day where we catch up on all the things we did not do on Saturday or a day to ramp up ahead to Monday. It hollows out our whole week because it marginalizes God, church, sermons, and all the other vital things that happen in our life, but only when those vital things are actually at the center of our life. If we accept the concept of the weekend, we risk fitting God in rather than centering every moment of our lives around him. So we risk living soul-exhausted lives and wondering why God is not more real to us, wondering why we are exhausted and grumpy. What he's highlighting for us, friends, is that the Sabbath is not just another Saturday. It's deeper It's more meaningful. And in fact, it cuts to our heart. It reveals our priorities. It exposes our hearts, revealing to us what it is that we are putting our trust in, what it is that we are boasting in. God gives us a Sabbath, a day to stop, to cease, to end, to rest. He gives us a day to stop in order to rest. To put it in a very different way, he gives us a day where we stop trying to be God and simply be with him. To stop trying to be God, but be with him. And that's what we're going to look at here in this text. To Stop trying to be God and simply be with him. So as we jump into our text here in Exodus 16, verses 1 through 5, we find out that it's been six weeks, six weeks, since Israel was rescued from Egypt, from their departure from Egypt. And in those six weeks, they have witnessed incredible things, mighty things from God. They have have witnessed salvation. Like just before those six weeks, there's the ten plagues, where God declared war on the false gods of Israel, the Egyptian pantheon. And then, when the Pharaoh said, "Yes, your people can go to wilderness. Yes, they may go get out here," he changed his mind. He sent his army, his chariot army, to chase Israel down. Meets them at the Red Sea, and God rescued His people there at the Red Sea. And then He led them by a pillar of fire and a cloud. And so. Israel, just within the past six weeks of their life, they have witnessed God's mighty hand of rescue. They have witnessed his salvation. And so that all the things that they witnessed were these mighty acts that are recorded for us in scripture and human history. These are no small things. These are things that you don't keep talking about in your everyday life. And yet, this is the context that we read this. In the desert, the whole community of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, if only we had died by the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. That is, it would be better for us to be slaves in Egypt and for God to kill us there or at least we had food. But God, you brought us here into the wilderness to starve us to death. These are not prayers of faith. These are not prayers of dependence. This is not boasting in the Lord. These are complaints. These are complaints where Israel is blaming God. In fact, when you grumble, when you complain, you are trying to be God. That's something that your heart is revealing to you because you are saying that you know better than God, that your will is better than God's, that your plan is better than God's, that the complaining and the grumbling reveals our heart, that we are seeing and discovering that we try to be God. And friends, this is a disconnect. This is a disconnect that we see in Israel. It's a disconnect we see in our lives because here's Israel. They've experienced salvation. They've experienced God's salvation, and yet they grumble, they complain. They've been rescued by God, and yet they blame God. That God has done the impossible, and yet they think that God brought them out into the wilderness simply to starve them to death. There's a disconnect. God rescued them, and yet they're thinking God's going to starve us. What's going on here? Chuck DeGroat, he's a counselor, seminary professor, He helps us understand what's occurring in Israel's life. This is an insight from his book, Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places. But he highlights that for hundreds of years, Israel is enslaved. All they knew was generational suffering and generational slavery. So it was familiar to, to them. Slavery was familiar to them. Freedom is a foreign concept. So freedom is hard. That slavery actually felt safer to them than freedom. So that they didn't know how to live at all. That idolatry felt better was preferred than God. That chains were preferred over the promised land. And so just the insight that grace is hard, freedom is difficult, love, unbelievable. That is Israel's mindset. And we see this plaguing their hearts for years, not just here in this moment, but fast forward into Numbers when Israel goes to the promised land and they're thinking, we can't do this. Here's this land overflowing with milk and honey, and these grapes are like the size of our heads, but it's too good to be true. God says he'll give us this land, but we can't have it. We are like grasshoppers instead. It would be better for us to be in Egypt. And that's Israel. There's this disconnect in their life. They've experienced God's redemption, and yet they're complaining and they're blaming God, thinking it would be better for us to be enslaved than to be here. That's Israel. What about you? How have you experienced God's kindness? How have you experienced God's rescue? How have you experienced the forgiveness of sins that he offers Do you respond to this salvation with kindness and obedience, with love? Or is it complaint and grumbling? That's the question that we need to sit with here in that moment. How do we respond to the redemption that God gives us? And friends, this is a question we need to sit with because the curse of sin runs deep. It runs very deep in our life. But the wonderful picture here in this passage is that even though it runs deep in our life, God is faithful. God is faithful to his word, his promise, his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's faithful and he provides. That here are the people who are blaming him, who are grumbling against him, who are complaining. And God doesn't answer with harshness. He answers with provision. God answers with provision. He provides manna. He provides, we skipped the quail part, but he provides quail. The dew of manna was like flour that you would see on the ground. And the quail, these birds, would fly migratory paths, long distances. So when they would land in the evening, they would be exhausted. Children could catch them with nets. You would be able to chase after them and capture them with your own bare hands. It would be easier than catching chickens. That's the picture of, that we have with, these, with God's provision of quail. But the thing is, God provides. Here's the manna, here's the quail. God provides. And yet Israel continues to try to be God, even with God's provision. And this is what we read in verse 16. Each is to gather as much as he needs. Take half a gallon, fancy Omer language there, for every person in your tent... But there's a limit. No one is to keep any of it until morning. And so some people ignored Moses' word. Some people actually gathered more than they were meant to. But that spoiled. There would be worms in it, maggots in it the next day. And yet, even though God's people did that, God kept providing. Every morning that happens. And then on the sixth day, God says this, Today, Gather twice as much as you've been gathering on all the other days. Because this, this is verse 23. Tomorrow is meant to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And again, some people ignored God's word. Some people decided to do their own thing. Some of the people went out to gather it. But what did they find? They went out expecting to see the manna on the ground, but there was none. And this is, friends, where we're getting into really the heart of the text. The heart of this idea to stop trying to be God. Because here we see something in Israel's life that we see as well in ours. That Israel did not take God at his word. They were doubting his promise. They were doubting his faithfulness. So they tried to be him. Even though, once again, God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. He's, he goes on to say that he will show his love to a thousand generations. That he will never abandon this covenant promise. And yet, and yet, we wonder if God actually means it. Does God truly love me? Does God even care? This is the heart of the, what Israel's going through. And this is what we go through every day of our lives. We wonder. If God loves us, we wonder if God cares. We wonder if God will provide. And when we doubt these things, we will never Sabbath. Because who are we going to depend on? If we cannot depend on the one who is faithful, the, the one who is able to provide for us, we're going to depend upon ourselves, and we're going to be exhausted, we're going to work harder, and we're going to be very critical And even miserable when we don't get the things that we want. So when we doubt God's love and care and provision for us, we will not Sabbath. Because we will not depend upon God, we will instead try to be him instead of being with him. And friends, this is where there's a major difference between imitating God and being him. In imitating God, you are actually fulfilling the way that God has created you. You are working six days and resting one day. You're imitating his character, his love, his truth, his justice, his goodness, his holiness. This is what we're called to do. Let us make man in our image is what Genesis tells us. That's what we're called to do. But when you try to be God, You're trying to do the things that only God can do. That God is all-powerful, all-knowing, that he is everywhere. We try to do these things, and this is actually one of the lies of our American culture. One of the lies of our American culture is that, yes, you can do everything. Yes, you can know everything. Yes, you can even be everywhere. For example, this is silly. I bought something online this week, and I had a tracking number. I decided to track it, like, okay, it's in Florida. It's in Palm Beach. Now it's over the ocean. Now it's in New Jersey. And, like, this was over a span of a few days. I was able to know something even without being there. But that's just one example. And so what we do with that, we internalize that, and we think, hey, I can know almost anything. if There's an app for that. And so this idea, even that, hey, you can do everything. But like yesterday, I had like five different opportunities presented before me yesterday. And so, some of you were at men's prayer. Some of you were helping the Medellos fix up their house. And there's my son had a soccer game. I was at Presbytery. Like, they're, like we have this feeling that I'm going to be missing out if I don't do everything. I don't feel guilty about not doing everything. This is the culture that we live in. But yet, over and over and over again, within scripture that we see this call to sabbath, to rest, to stop our work, to stop trying to be God and to rest and be with him, to delight in God. This call to sabbath actually shows us that we can't be God. You can't do everything. You can't know everything. You can't be everywhere. Even though our culture says, here's all the technology, and you should really try. And as I looked at this passage, though, there's something that actually really surprised me in this passage. And it's fun to think about for myself. And it's this, is that God is actually caring for his people differently, depending on what day it is. God is caring for his people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. He's caring for his people by putting manna on the ground. But how God cares for his people on, on the day of rest or on the Sabbath is actually he cares for his people the day before. That he cares for his people in abundance and generosity. That God provides for his people differently depending on the day it is. That he provides what is ne- only needed, but then he provides on one day that is extravagant and generous and in abundance. And he provides for you in this abundance so that you can actually Sabbath and rest. So again, the question for you at this point is, how do you do this? How does, actually, how does God do this for you? How does God abundantly provide for you? How does God abundantly provide for you? I've practiced the Sabbath for truly almost as long as I can remember. And some of these stories don't feel a little odd to you. But the reality is, as I've practiced the Sabbath and celebrated the Sabbath, I have found it immensely challenging at times. So, for example, when I was in college, my Hebrew professor would schedule our Hebrew exams on Monday. That's not a real big issue, except those exams were at 8 a.m. Why he would do that, I don't know. And, but as I saw my work, as, as my studying as my work, I would not study on Sundays. That may sound crazy to you. Instead, I would actually go to bed shortly after sunset. In the Jewish mind, Sabbath begins at sunset to, and ends on sunset. And I would wake up at 3 a.m. to study. I actually had a lot of fun doing it. So hence why I kept doing it. But to my classmates, that was weird. But I was able to celebrate Monday morning by having pancakes and chocolate milk just before I would go to class and take my exam. I was able to celebrate. Again, I know, it sounds odd. But another example where I found Sabbath, both beautiful and hard and challenging at the same time, is when I was a, a high school teacher. That on, There's this wonderful dynamic for teachers, and teachers, you'll understand this, is that your work responsibilities start at like 7.45, would you and are you emotionally ready for the onslaught that is about to happen in the few moments when all the teenagers would come into your homeroom? I would ask questions of myself. Would, would I be able to get my grading done and, and more? And I, but I would be very tempted to use Sunday to get ahead in the week to do my grading to make sure of things as opposed to actually do the harder work of rearranging my own syllabus as well. To serve my students as well. But these are just examples. But friends, I hope you are able to latch on to them, that whatever your work responsibilities are, whatever your work is, the Sabbath challenges you. And they force you, the Sabbath forces you to ask a few questions. Are you depending upon yourself to get things done? Are you depending upon are you depending on yourself for your grades, your work, to get ahead of life, to fix things up, whatever it may be? See, the Sabbath challenges us by forcing us to ask a question. Whom is it that we depend on? Whom is it that we depend on? Because the Sabbath says, stop trying to be God and simply be with Him. And let this, I, want to think us, I want us now to think about this idea of being with God. And Eugene Peterson, in an article published in Christianity Today, this is back in 1997, Eugene Peterson, he also wrote this large paraphrase of Scripture called The Message. But this is what Eugene Peterson wrote. An accurate understanding of Sabbath is prerequisite to its practice. It must be understood biblically, not culturally. A widespread misunderstanding of Sabbath trivializes it by designating it as a day off. A day off is a bastard Sabbath. Days off are not without benefits, to be sure, but Sabbaths, they are not. However beneficial days off are, they are not a true Sabbath. They are a secularized Sabbath because the motivation for days off is utilitarian. It makes you feel better. Relationships improve. You may even get more things done during your work week. But the day off is always at the service of your work, of the six working days. The purpose is to restore strength, increase motivation, and keep your productivity and performance high. But the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is given to you by God for you to tend to your souls. The Sabbath is not given for you, to you so that you would be a better worker throughout the week. That is a wonderful benefit to be sure. But the Sabbath is given by God to you to tend to your souls so again, with this Sabbath being a challenge and a question of dependence, it is turning over all your roles and responsibilities to God. Your responsibilities of, that come with work, everything that you have if your possessions, money, work, status, reputation, projects, plans, all of these things we are turning over to God and simply putting them before Him and saying, God, do with these things what you will. I will and I trust you. I trust you to provide for me. I am looking, and like, even like, you're looking forward to seeing what God does with this. And so God is actually wanting the Sabbath rhythm of turning over things to him. in this act of faith and this act of dependence to him in the rest of our life. So that our Sabbath, that Sabbath is actually seen Monday through Saturday. And and this idea of Sabbath, this idea of rest, we actually see this other ways in our life. Think about sleep for a moment. You go to bed, you go to sleep at night. Does anyone else have their mind racing at night? Be like, I can't fall asleep for a while. And in fact, there's this nighttime anxiety that just like turns up. As you're trying to slow down, take a few deep breaths, close your eyes, your mind just wants to go into overdrive. And so the reality with sleep is there's this question of what are you trusting in? What am I trusting in? I forget who said it, forget where I read it, but there's this one person who could not sleep because they had this fear of dying and they could not bring peace to their souls. See, we're able to go to sleep in peace because God is providing for us. That God is actually working in us even when we sleep. That, like, I have no idea where this book was, but this one author said that, in fact, God is at work in us when we are sleeping so that when we wake up tomorrow, we are a better person tomorrow than we are today. God's at work. Why are we trying? Why are we striving? Why are we boasting in ourselves? And so the question, again, the Sabbath is putting for us, do, are we resting in God? Do you rest in God? Do you trust in him? Do you depend upon him? And frankly, friends, this was the biggest lesson for my sabbatical. To step completely out of pastoral ministry for a prolonged season all of summer, to entrust that God was working in this church without me, to entrust things to staff, to elders, to you, ultimately the Spirit. Like, that is a major lesson of dependence for myself. And so how I've been describing sabbatical is taking a heavy burden off my shoulders, putting it by the front door, but then coming back to and returning to pastoral ministry, looking at that burden and just thinking, I can't pick that up. I can't pick that up. And the reality is, I shouldn't. Because the, the work of ministry, this is God's work to pick up that he involves us in. And this lesson and that dynamic is not solely focused on ministry. It's also marriage. It's parenting. It's vocation. It's friendship. Discernment. When you're making decisions about school or housing, moving, paychecks, whatever it may be, God is the one whom we need to look to and depend on. We cannot do these things ourselves. We have no strength and we have no ability to do them. And God is actually our provider the one whom we look to and we depend on. And God says, hey, pray, ask me to provide for you. In fact, I dare you to ask me and I will provide for you in abundance. And so in the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread. And so as I think about this idea of dependence, there's this once artist, songwriter, Wendell Kembra, he wrote a song based upon The prayer of Saint Patrick, and this one line in the song goes like this: "I rise up this morn, this morning, and in strength that is not my own, kept by the promise that I am not alone." And this is the Sabbath invitation. That God says, come and I will give you rest. And there you have the Sabbath promise of, of true rest. Where we do not have to hurry or to prove anything to God. We're simply able to rest in him because we know that he is providing for us. That we're able to depend upon him. Trust in him. Look to him. Because he is our heavenly father. He says, I will be your guide. You will be my people. He will provide for you, friends. So the Sabbath lesson, the Sabbath lesson of dependence is here where we are invited and challenged to stop trying to be God and simply be with Him. That's a wonderful, wonderful reality that is given to us by God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this good word that you have given to us. We thank you that you have given it And shown us this wonderful picture that you provide for us. You have given us your word. And that you are faithful to your word of being a provider. A caregiver. As our Heavenly Father that you are working in our life. And so Father we pray that you would give us the grace. That we would not be a a self-reliant people. That instead of trying to be self-sufficient. That we would actually renounce these things that we would look to you and be dependent upon you. And this is the picture of faith, that as you tell us that you love us and that you care for us and you will provide for us, help us not to doubt your word, but to look to you in sure hope, knowing that you will follow through. So, Father, we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts that in the coming days and weeks that we would embody this wonderful truth more clearly in our lives, that we would be a people of hope and faith and expect and true expectant rest in our, in our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.